good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and it's nice to see such a room full of ready-to-be-instructed-and-learning faces. Um, this is the second annual Law and Communications Research Network lecture. Um, I'm Professor Andrew Murray. I'm from the law department. So I'm the law part represented here tonight. Um, I'm not going to be saying anything, really. I'm just here to mediate. Um, the bulk of what you're going to get tonight are represented by our two speakers, who I'm going to introduce in a minute. But just before we start, I just want to say a little bit about the Law and Communications Research Network. It's um, something that's been going just over two years, and it's about sort of building connections between two of the LSE's most interesting and vibrant departments, uh, the Law Department and the Department of Media and Communications. Um, we're two really good departments, it must be said. If you look at the QS World Rankings, you know, the Communications and Media Studies, the LSE ranks fifth, which is pretty good out of the entire world. Um, law ranks seventh, and we're going to do something about that next year. We can't be below them. Um, we are seventh. I, I think, I can't prove this sure, empirically, but I think there are more law schools globally than there are media and communication schools. So relatively, I think we're doing as well. Um, and we've been building up our shared research interests for the last two years, two and a bit years, in a number of areas. There's lots of areas where there's synergy between us. Um, and we had our first annual lecture last year, and it was given by Julie Cohen, Professor Julie Cohen, who is a lawyer, essentially, but she's a lawyer which she produces work of interest to media and communications scholars. And the reason that we did that was to cement this relationship. We thought we'll invite along someone who can talk from the perspective of being a lawyer, but who's understood and talks to people from media and communications. So when it came time to hold our second annual lecture, then we thought about, in essence, doing the reverse. So what we wanted was someone with a background in media and communications and culture and society who spoke to lawyers, someone whose work is interesting and valued by lawyers like myself. So what we did is that the lawyers in the group were asked to come up with a list of likely names um, who would fit the bill. Um, we went away and there was a short and intense discussion, produced quite a short and intense list. And at the top of that list was Jose Van Dyke. And we thought, oh, we probably won't get her, but we'll ask anyway. Um, so I'm pleased to say she's here tonight. Um, most of us know Jose through well, a lot of her work. She's got an excellent book, The Culture of Connectivity. Um, subtitle A Critical History of Social Media, which was published in 2013. And this discusses vividly, um, to lawyers like myself, the somewhat hidden role that platform providers play in our connected society. And it's you know, something I was finding myself thinking about recently on occasions when things like Twitter were discussing removing the 140-character limit from the ability to tweet, or even something simple like Facebook's new response buttons that allow you to do more than just like things. You know, so, my dog died, like. Um, no, we can now say my dog died, sad. Um, so you know, the, the platform and how we communicate is very important. 
Um, and there's lots of similar messages that we as lawyers have seen in a lot of her work, including her recent manifesto for the journal SM&S, and I imagine some of this will emerge tonight. Um, her research interests intersect with what we as lawyers find interesting. So she's written about the role of journalists and the independence of journalism in social media, the datification and um, the data valence of the individual, which is a major issue for lawyers in the UK at the moment, with the Investigatory Powers Bill having a second reading next week in the UK Parliament, the General Data Protection Regulation ready for adoption, and our brand new and shinily named Privacy Shield, um, which will keep us safe from US surveillance of European citizens. So what I'm going to do now is just introduce our two speakers. Um, so our first speaker, as I've already said, is Jose van Dijk, and she is the Professor of Comparative Media Studies at University of Amsterdam and is President of the Royal Dutch Academy. Um, she has worked in several places and has produced, as I've already said, a number of important contributions into the field of communications connectivity and platforms. And Jose is going to speak for about 45 minutes or so. And then there will be a response from Sonia Livingston. And Sonia is professor in the Department of Media and Communications. Um, she is a fellow of the British Psychological Society and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. She is many, many other things. Many of you already know Sonia. Most of her groundbreaking work is to do with the position of children in the online communicated environment um, and she's a sort of powerhouse in the media and communications department and she's going to reply for about 10 minutes I've told her. The one thing I have been told um, by, and it's disappeared, yeah there it is, the one thing I've been told by Bradley to make sure everyone knows is please tweet using the hashtag LSE Dyke and um, that will get all of our um, story of the evening collected in one place and really everyone should be tweeting on a subject like this or Facebooking or Instagramming or something else but I'm going to stop now and I'm going to hand over and ask you to welcome our speaker Jose van Dijk. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much for this very warm welcome. I feel very welcome already at LSE. And of course, I would like to thank Nick and Sonia for welcoming me in your department today. Um, it's very nice to be here. I was here two years ago, I think, on the occasion of talking about my previous book, The Culture of Connectivity, but that was at Goldsmiths. So, um, and it's interesting that this is actually my first uh, talk on a new book, I'm sort of in between books. You know, people used to say that about boyfriends and about homes or jobs, but I say that about books. I'm in between books because I happen to do a new job at the moment as the president of the uh, uh, Academy of Science in the Netherlands. Um, this book is going to be, I hope it's going to be published like next year, but I'm not sure yet because, um, well, I'm not sure how fast it will go, but it's based on a research project that I'm doing with my colleague Thomas Poole. Um, it's, if some of you, I don't know how many of you have read my last book, which came out in 2013, The Culture of Connectivity, but it was basically a critical history of social media about the first year, 10 years, the first decade of uh, social media since it has been around. And what I did in that book is I basically described the evolution in those 10 years of 
um, uh, an e what I called an ecosystem of connective media. And I basically explained how all these networked platforms became intricately intertwined, not only technically, but especially socially and economically. So that is the kind of um, evolution description that I uh, try to do in that book. Now, in my last chapter, and I don't expect any, uh, you know, every one of you to have read the book, but in my last chapter, I focused on uh, what I called the, the sort of core, the hardcore of that ecosystem of platforms, and we call those GAFAP platforms, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. And in 2013, well, actually 2012, when I finished the book, it became pretty clear that this was... The, these were the hardcore, you know, the major platforms that were going to define what our, pl our platform society was going to look like. That platform society, I already predicted in the last chapter, was not going to be a level playing field, although almost every day new platforms came around and tried to find themselves, fight themselves into a place in that specific, uh, in that ecosystem. Um, I'll come back to that, but so... What, since that time, since 2012, when I finished uh, writing the book, um, what has evolved is, a cult from a culture of connectivity, what has evolved is a platform society. And I, I'm going to talk a little more about that name, but what it means basically is that all areas of public and private life have been penetrated by online platforms in the meantime. Now, if you look at this, it's sort of a very simple um, uh, uh, illustration did, but still at the core of this network, of this ecosystem, you still see those four core platforms, the GAFA platforms. You may count Microsoft and Yahoo as, you know, other core platforms. But around that, what has uh, evolved is a, uh, you know, almost any sector in, in our society has become platformized or the platformization of different uh, sectors of public life. Now, for instance, on the right side, you see um, uh, higher education, you see news and journalism. On the bottom line, you see basically platforms that have to do with fitness and health. Here you see the hospitality sector, Booking.com and Airbnb. There you see the transportation sector, Lyft and Uber. Any one of those, both private and public sectors, have been penetrated by platforms. And those platforms have a very profound impact on the social order, on the way that our societies are organized, that public life is organized. For example, and it's not just, you know, if they're private, if they are private um, platforms, it's not that they just transform a private sector, but also public life at the same time. Take Airbnb, for example. Um, it is changing, of course, the hospitality sector economically, but it's also changing our neighborhood dynamics. Just think about, you know, how people with those roller suitcases are annoying you at night because they're, you know, they're sort of you know, crossing your neighborhood and there are all these tourists in there, at least that's my impression from how Airbnb has penetrated Amsterdam, certainly my neighborhood. But that, so it's not just a private sector that's being disrupted, but it's, you know, also, also social life that is being transformed. So I talk about a platform society, but that's not a very common term. When, you know, I think until recently, like last year, I would certainly have talked about the sharing economy or about, you know, uh, a little further behind, like the re um, uh, participatory culture. 
those two terms have become very well known and have become used you know, all the time. Participatory culture, I talk about that in my uh, connectivity book as well. Participatory culture sort of echoes the early promises of the Web 2.0, where there was a lot of euphoria about the participation of users building online communities. That was the discourse that was used. Participatory culture was very much around, you know, that term was really popular around 2006. But that, in the meantime, since, you know, 2009 and 10, that euphoria has shifted to the use of the sharing economy. Now, sharing in is used in the sense of sharing um, informal services, informal spaces, informal goods, things that we share. But basically what it means is that we exchange goods or services for user data. And, or sometimes a brokerage fee that's in between you, know, you giving away your user data and getting back some services, like with Airbnb or Uber or whatever platform uh, you use. That word, the term sharing economy, still breeds the spirit of uh, participation and communality, that spirit that was around around you know, 2006. But sharing is now basically the equivalent of an economic transaction. It is really a transaction with data as currency. So sharing is, in fact, what I call a misnomer. It is really you know, something else. It's you know, a much broader thing. The sharing economy has been tremendously popular as a term. And for the past four years, we've heard about you know, euphoric stories about how the sharing economy is going to disrupt you know, all of the different sectors, like transportation, hospitality, but also you know, neighborhood work. A lot of sectors are currently really uprooted by, the way, uh, by some of these uh, new platforms. Um, but just recently, I think last year, there has also been some negative publicity, at least about the negative effects of the potential harmful effects of the sharing economy. But that harm, those harmful effects were mostly phrased in terms of harmful for individuals, not you know, the impact on society. It was mostly about here, and here read this from Time magazine, just last February, strangers crashed my car, ate my food, and wore my pants. Those were the tales from the sharing economy. So, and that technology quarterly issue, I don't think you can tell from its cover, but it's really defining the harmful effects of the sharing economy in terms of, you know, well, there's all these legal barriers put up by the old economy, you know, all kinds of new models, and that's really hampering innovation. So it's basically about the growing pains of platforms, the sort of individual nuisance or annoyance that, you know, that brings to individual um, uh, happiness. So when we talk about this, this, uh, those harmful effects, it's mostly calling for regulation in terms of protecting consumers and small entrepreneurs. That's you know, the kind of effects that we need to contain. So that's what those, that, that those calls are about. Um, but of course, networked platforms, network platforms are very much affecting civic life and public policy making. It's not simply like those platforms are good or bad or they have, uh, benef- uh, they have beneficial or harmful effects. It's much more. It's much more profound the kind of effects that they have on society. And that's something I would like to focus on. 
That's not an easy story. I think it was much easier to tell that you know, the story of the, uh, the culture of connectivity than it is to talk about the platform society right in the middle of something that is happening today. And it's changing by the day. So my research object is really a moving target. And you'll have to live with that. So, you know, there's some things that I can explain and some, some that I can't. So it's a little, um, uh, well, it's... R- very risky for me, of course, to talk about this, these sort of things at this ty- uh, stage of my research, but I'll do it anyway. The platform society, that's the term that I prefer over the terms sharing economy and participatory culture, and I do that for several reasons. I picked that term very consciously, and I'm still sort of developing the reason why I focus on platforms and not, for instance, on uh, the data society or the algorithm society. I could have done that as well, but I choose very consciously the word platform. Um, Platforms, for one thing, are not just about the economy. They are about the organization, and they affect the organization of society, both, as I said, the private and the public sphere. They're also not just about businesses or individuals that, you know, there's not just people who are affected by platforms, but there's communities and governments that are affected by platforms. In fact, there's whole, you know, international global um, constellations that are affected by platforms. A very important thing that I'm going to explain in, uh, in, a, in just a few minutes is that platforms have their own dynamics. They have their own, they're steered by a set of mechanisms that I will explain shortly. And those mechanisms are very much sort of contained to that new platform uh, dynamics, the new platform infrastructure. So that's a very important thing. And they, they are defined, those mechanisms basically consists of You know, data flows, algorithms, business models, and governments. I'll return to that point a little later. Very important to remember is that a platform society is not some sort of new public, new space that is separate from the world we live in. It's actually quite to the contrary. The platform society is gradually intermingling, interrelating, interfering with all parts of our public, you know, our everyday lives. It is showing, up, showing in, for instance, everyday practices like, um, you know, either you know, uh, calling for a cab or uh, uh, going to a hotel or going to an Airbnb room instead of um, uh, a hotel. So it's actually interfering with a lot of these, um, th- you know, a lot of places in everyday life that you would not have expected those you, you would not have expected those to be penetrated by uh, electronics before by you know any kind of e-engineering and finally why I choose the term uh, platform over other terms is that any platform society operates globally but it does so by infiltrating local and national practices even entire sectors so what we're seeing a lot these days what happens a lot what happened a lot over the past few years is a lot of confrontations between uh, platform owners and regulators and legislators on different levels most of these platforms operate globally at least the most successful ones but they they fight their battles locally and nationally. And that's a very important thing to remember. Whenever you see you know, new, new platforms emerge, they're 
called successful when they can operate globally. Just last week, I uh, read about three new apps in my neighborhood. One of them was, uh, what was the name? Um, neighborhood uh, Nextdoor.com. The other one was, uh, and then in Dutch, Gebied uh, Online, which is areaonline.nl. There were three different apps, and I didn't really know. They were all having the same sort of functions. You know, you all, could you all use them sort of for the same things, like uh, calling, for, uh, calling one, on, on one of your neighbors to uh, borrow uh, some tool, for instance, some, uh, has something to work or something in your house. And um, the interesting thing is they're all hugely different. The one that got a lot of attention was Nextdoor, and that is an app that was uh, funded by Silicon Valley money and was going to operate globally. So it was going to penetrate all kinds of neighborhoods in all various different countries. The one that got the least attention was the neighborhood app that was just started by a few neighbors who wanted to have, you know, wanted to have the same function, but it didn't get by far, you know, the one, the Nextdoor. A platform got by far the most attention from the media, for interviews, television, etc. So, anyway, so the platform society, let me get back to the definition. And as a scholar, I always like to have my definition straight, so at least we know what we're talking about. And I think um, for lawyers, that's a very important thing to, uh, to do. So I'm not a lawyer, my sister is a lawyer, but you know, she always tells me, you have to get your definition straight. So I uh, uh, I try to facilitate her. Um, a platform is what I call an online site that organizes data streams, economic interactions, and social exchanges between users. It's a very simple definition. But it's a very different definition than uh, a definition that's more commonly used. Um, a lot of, in, you know, oftentimes what you see is that platforms are used merely as um, in its technical sense. They're merely facilitators of social action. It's a very instrumental definition. And what I would like to point out is that platforms are not merely technical, you know, technical fac uh, facilities that enable you to do stuff, but they're both technological, they're economic, and socio-cultural configuration. So it's all of the above. It's not just a technical enabler. Um, what I call a platform ecosystem, and that's basically what my previous book was about, is an assemblage of networked platforms governed by its own dynamics, the mechanisms, operating on certain premises. And that's a very important notion. It's not that you know, we make those up. Internally, in, inscribed more or less in the technology of platforms is, are a lot of norms, are a lot of values. And those are the kind of things that we try to analyze, that we try to see when we work with them, but they're, oftentimes they're very invisible. There's a lot of norms inscribed in algorithms, for instance, in protocols. Um, and those are the kind of norms and values that we don't see, that are hidden from view. Um, Finally, and sorry, that, about that ecosystem, a few more things. I just, um, uh, I already said that the whole platform ecosystem is not a level playing field. You know, the GAFA platforms that I showed in the beginning, those are, some platforms are more equal than others. And those GAFA platforms are certainly more equal than a lot of these newer platforms that have, that have arrived on the scene in, you know, in the past few years. And that, you know, the fact that it's not a level playing field is, of course, very important for the kind of apps that we allow to grow and uh, uh, to pick up steam. 
most importantly, I think, you know, when we talk about the platform society, we talk about a society which social, economic, and interpersonal traffic is largely channeled by an overwhelmingly corporate global online infrastructure. That is, and we come back to it, driven by algorithms and fueled by data. Now, when I use the term uh, uh, the platform society, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not meaning that there's one singular global society. In fact, of course, there's a number of competing ideological hemispheres that are creating, more or less constructing, their own versions of a platform society. In China and Russia, they have a different type of platform society, you know, intermingling with their offline institutions and frameworks than we have in uh, Western countries like the UK or the Netherlands, or in the United States for that matter, which has, you know, another, well, a different type of platform society. I'll get back to that in a minute. And finally, what I mean by platform society is it's not a static process, it's not a static entity, not something that's finished. It's constantly evolving. It's a process and its configuration is in full swing. And that's why we need to take notice. That's why we need to uh, pay attention to how it's constructed. Now, here's a very simplified sort of um, Habermasian idea of how we look at how we talk about the public and the private sphere. Um, what I argue here in this slide is basically that each sector that I will be talking about, um, every sector is an intense ideological uh, battlefield about what the platform society really is. Now, in this ideal sort of format, we distinguish between several kinds of actors. Of course, on the left side, you see the private actors, corporations, entrepreneurs, consumer groups, and consumers. That's what we call the private sphere. On the right, uh, on the right hand, you see more or less you know, the actors that uh, 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 act in the, in the public sphere, governments, institutions, NGOs, collectives, and citizens. So ideally, we would be able to distinguish those and sort of keep them to their own sphere, right? Well, that ideal, uh, uh, of course, is never going to be attained. We have known that for a long time. Um, and of course, we know that in various, I was just talking about those ideological you know, battles in the different hemispheres. In Russia, China, there's a lot more pressure from governments and institutions to define what the platform society is, vis-a-vis, -vis, for instance, the United States, where it's mostly defined by corporations and entrepreneurs. Vis-a-vis -vis the Netherlands, for instance, where I think, um, and certainly in our history, we have a long history of nonprofits and collectives that define how you know, the, the public sphere is governed. So each sector, as you know, I argue, is, has become a site of disruption. And by sector, I mean you know, sectors like the hospitality sector of the transport or the transportation sector, but also health, education, and news, for instance. Journalism and news has, is, is very rapidly turning into a platform, uh, uh, you know, platforms penetrating the production of news. Now, in my view, over the past years, we've heard a lot about Airbnb and Uber, about private sectors becoming platformized, if that's a verb. It's not a verb, but I use it as a verb. We have heard a lot less about public sectors becoming you know, penetrated by platforms, infiltrated by platforms, and how that works. So when we talk about, you know, dis uh, uh, disruptive platforms, we 
immediately think of Airbnb, but we don't think about a lot of these um, sectors like the health sector or education, where platformization is certainly an important issue. So I would like to um, pay more attention to that particular sector. Oh, what am I doing here? Okay. Um, and in each of those sectors, what the battle is about is really who controls the networked public sphere. That is really what it's all about. Um, when, oops. Um, each of these platforms, when they, st you know, when they come into being, um, it's very interesting to look at their promises. What do they promise? What do they offer? And this is something that after looking at you know, many of these platforms, I realized that a lot of them promise to offer personalized services while contributing to the public good, not just in the public sector, but also in the private sector. <coughs> they promise to promote collectivity, community, connectedness, while efficiently bypassing, they always call that cumbersome institutional or industrial overhead. Like, now you can use an app and you can actually avoid going to a doctor. <coughs> You know, that's sort of avoiding to go to a hospital or avoiding to go to a doctor. You can avoid going to a university by using a MOOC, by a massive open online course. So it's really this idea that you can do, you can actually, uh, platforms are better at organizing society than conventional states or conventional markets. That's a lot of, you know, these promises <coughs> underlying this idea. Um, I just talked about the mechanisms that are, you know, I wondered how those promises live up to or how they tally with the premises or the mechanisms that are underlying this platform infrastructure, the platform uh, uh, ecosystem. And all of these platforms in the ecosystem, and I think I explored that in my previous book, are sort of run, sort of steered by very similar underlying mechanisms. I actually explained that much more in detail than I can do that tonight in an article called Understanding Social Media Logic, which I co-authored with uh, Thomas Poole. But I picked like three um, uh, terms, three mechanisms that I use in analyzing how those platforms work, and those are datafication, automated selection, and commodification. Now, datafication is probably a very familiar term to you, but... Um, Every activity, more or less, every social activity is translated into data. <coughs> By automated selection, what we mean is that algorithms, um, they really can nudge personal choices. Your trend trending topics, your news feed, that's really sort of personalized algorithms define what you get to see on the site. So, um, so what they do is basically, they're really the soft power of uh, electronics of you know of the platform society they're more or less dividing selecting individuals instead of uniting them through common concerns but we get to a society where for instance every each and every one of you reads their own personal news whereas you know you no longer read a newspaper together where you all get to read the same news so that is what algorithms can do they can give you personalized news through your news feed and sort of avoid uh, the common, common, uh, common news. Commodification, finally, is um, uh, focusing on the governance and the business models of platforms. Now, 
Many of you never even look at how a, you know, a platform makes its money or the way it's governed. Some of you, of course, do, who are interested in how platforms are run and how they're operated. But oftentimes it's very, very difficult to precisely find out how a platform is governed. Is it a for-profit or a non-profit uh, model? Is it a public governance model? How does a platform makes, makes its money? What is its business models model? Is it doing that through advertisements, through data selling to third parties, uh, through service fee or brokerage fees? You know, it's quite actually quite difficult to exactly figure out how a site operates and is governed and how it makes its money, whether it sells your data or not. You know, there's no such thing as a transparent policy for each and every, one, every platform that tells you so. So these are the mechanisms that more or less steer, define how that ecosystem um, uh, works. Now, that's one thing. But then, you know, those premises are increasingly underpinning the way that what I already called the intermingling of platforms with institutions in real life. But of course, a lot of the norms and values that we are, de that we are creating and uh, developing in our society are underpinned by norms and values that we have created, you know, that we have commonly created. And my main question now, and that's a question that I haven't solved, I hope you, you, will, you can help me a little bit tonight, but that's, you know, I haven't written the last chapter yet, so this is certainly going to be part of that. But the main question is how can we anchor collective public values in a platform society. As I already said, like now, you know, sort of now that institutions or governance, governments are increasingly bypassed as a sort of cumbersome overhead uh, by platforms, we need to find a different way to anchor public values in those platform dynamics or in the design of platforms. And that's a very, you know, quite a difficult thing to do. When dealing with apps, you know, every new app that you see, when dealing with those apps, um, governments are usually concerned with regulating apps in terms of safety or accuracy or privacy. I always say privacy, of course, but uh, you say privacy. So safety, accuracy, privacy are the kind of values, public values, that governments are, you know, quite interested in regulating and that they can still feel they have a handle on. But there's other public values such as transparency, transparency fairness, and democratic control that are much harder to pinpoint, that are much harder to protect, you know, in a system that is still where there's a huge gray area in, you know, terms of, of uh, legislation. So one reason why it's so hard to, uh, uh, to show how those values are inscribed in that new platform society is because partly they're invisible. They're invisible in the mechanics of each platform. Uh, I already told you that it's sometimes extremely hard, you know, with those neighborhood apps I just told you about, there was no way I could actually find how they worked correctly. I, there was no way I could find that out. I had to really go look for, you know, other clues to find out how uh, of those mo mechanics. What did they do to my data? Were they reusing my data? Were they selling the data? There was just, you know, very, it was very, very difficult to find that out. 
and partly because those public values are also hidden in the dynamics of the entire ecosystem. We don't know exactly what platforms, you know, how they're uh, uh, selling data to third parties. For instance, if they only distribute it through the App Store, how are data going to be dealt with? You know, is Apple going to be the owner of those data? There are lots of questions there that we haven't resolved yet. Okay, so that was my basic uh, concern, how to anchor those uh, collective public values in what we now call the platform society. And I've been looking at two different sectors in particular, and I'm not sure if I have time to deal with each of them, but at, at you know, the very least, I should tell you more about the health sector. Um, the platformization of the health sector is actually quite interesting. Um, what I have been looking at is, you know, how different platforms, different apps in that one area in health are taking over more or less different aspects of um, uh, health research, for instance, and sort of accommodation, facilitation of patients who are looking for, um, you know, diagnostic apps or medical apps or what have you. And my basic question is, how do the, prom the, the, pr the promises that those apps, apps make to you as a patient, how do they tally with their claim that they're also a public good? So that in itself is an interesting claim that they make. Now, I don't know whether you have noticed, but health platforms are, uh, have really, really, you know, exploded over the past year. Last year in 2015, there were 165,000 apps in the App Store alone. And it's growing by the day. So it's a, a tremendous um, uh, uh, evolution of these um, uh, health apps. They're ranging from fitness apps to monitoring apps, you know, any, the Fitbit, the Stravas, any kind of fitness apps that you use. But there are also patients' experience, exchange apps, and diagnostic apps. There's a series of apps, and, you know, they're all sort of categorized under one uh, uh, nomer, and that is uh, health platforms, or e-health, or m-health platforms. Their governance models, they range from all the way from for-profit platforms to non-profit and everything in between. So it's, especially with those health apps, it's very difficult to define, you know, what they're doing, what they're doing to your data and how they're being managed, how they're governed. The government, at least in the, uh, in the United States, the FDA and also the Dutch equivalent of the FDA, they check a few apps for security, only for security and safety, and some of them for accuracy. But it's actually quite difficult, you know, to find out, to, to put up norms for uh, doing that. Uh, the Dutch FDA actually spent just last year nine months, months checking the accuracy of one app. And even if you, you know, that's how laborious it is. That's how much work it is to, you know, to really check apps for accuracy and safety. And... Um, once you've checked them, you can start all over again because if they, you know, they pr pretty much put up a new version of an app every two months. So that's how intense that is. Now let me focus on three specific health apps and see how that works for, you know, the health sector. All of these three have become pretty, I think they've become pretty uh, popular, except for the last one. I'm not sure how popular that is, but the first two, uh, I s I, is there anyone who doesn't, who has never... S uh, seen any of those names? 23andMe and Patients Like Me? 
Okay, let me explain a little bit about those apps so you know what they're all about. 23andMe is a for-profit personalized genome service. So what you do is you put a little bit of saliva of spit in, uh, in a plastic bag and you send in a tube and you send it away to uh, this service. So it has an offline component, which is the spit, the saliva, and an online comp uh, component because uh, once you get the result, you get your DNA, your, you know, your, your genetic makeup, you can, they ask you through an app to, you're invited to give a lot of you know, personal uh, information about your health, your status, your, your family, your brothers and sisters. So you know, it has an offline and online component. That app, <coughs> 23andMe, uh, was banned from the United States, from the American market, in 2013. And what it did, of course, there's a huge market. They already have genetic profiles of over one million people. And what it did to save its business is they... Um, changed the name to an ancestry app. And that is, uh, you know, that, of course, then it's under a different regulation and can no longer be uh, checked for security, accuracy, and safety. So what they did next is they moved the app and its um, uh, regulation process to the UK. And now it's one, uh, its global business is actually run from the UK. It's, it's exported to over 50 countries from here. And it got a license here. So now it's regulated in this country. Still in the United States, it's still banned. But anyway, that's in itself an interesting thing, talking about national, uh, global platforms meeting with national uh, regulations. Patients Like Me is... I think a very intriguing app, and I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going more into detail with patients like me in just a second, but that is really uh, promoted as a patient's experience platform. That's where you, you know, you talk to fellow patients about what your disease is all about, and you give away your data uh, for research. So that's, that's how that app is used. And it's all like concentrated around different sorts of illnesses, Parkinson, epilepsy, etc. I'll return to that in just a sec. Parkinson Empower is the only non-profit platform that uh, I could find was collecting um, uh, data, patient data from Parkinson patients for research. So what they do, if you, if you carry your, uh, your iPhone, it actually only works with an iPhone, so they only have 20% of the patient population, I assume. Um, uh, it, checks for, it checks you automatically for tremors, for balance, and you do little tests on your iPhone for concentration, for instance, uh, to see how, um, uh, how your uh, Parkinson's disease is developing. So, now let me focus a little more on patients like me, because that, I think, is an interesting case, mostly because that platform is very explicit. It's one of the few that is very explicit about how its data is used and how they profile themselves as an app. And I say that, I recommend the app for that and uh, the platform for that. So let me explain those, you know, those complex mechanisms that I just pointed out, datafication and selection and governance in terms of this app. Um, what you do when you enter the platform is that you know, if you're a patient, you're looking for information, right? And what the platform does for you, if you give away your patient data, for instance, you're um, an epilepsy uh, patient, you uh, give away each day, you know, you put up, uh, you give away data about how you feel, very subjective experiences, um, uh, how your medication works, side effects of your medication. 
you name it. There's like a hundred things that you can put on the site. And what the site does for you as a service is that you can take a sheet, a printed sheet to your doctor, and you have all those results printed out and neatly organized for you. So, you know, you can go to a doctor and this sheet will help you. Um, of course, it's a patient experience uh, place where pla patients go to talk to each other. But it, it, it triggers, it sort of, you know, it asks you to donate your data for research. That's the public good claim that this site makes. Um, its governance model is an interesting one, and I'm going to read this from the site. Um, it's uh, Patients Like Me is a for-profit company with a not-just-for-profit attitude. I had to think about that line a couple of times, but it's a non-profit, a for-profit company with a not-just-for-profit attitude. So patients are providing their data. Industry partners can use those data for research and, you know, for... Uh, other things. This is not uh, mentioned. Their business model is even more interesting. And now, I, this is why I recommend patients like me as a research uh, a model for analysis, because they're very explicit. They state, we take the information patients like you share about your experience with the disease and sell it to our partners that are developing products Products may include drugs, devices, equipment, insurance, and medical services. So it's very upfront about, you know, what it does with your data, what it does to your data. And um, what I will show you now is a little clip from patients like me. Um, if, you, if you go to that site, what you will see is this. It's sort of the welcoming, uh, welcoming clip. Oh, excuse me. I was going to... Okay, that's patients like me. What you heard was uh, promise, the promise that, you know, it's almost like this site. If you use this site, if you use patients like me, you're going to find a cure because all of the data that you donate to uh, this site is actually going to help you, uh, you know, help researchers find a, uh, find a cure. Now, that, of course, what it does is it's certainly combines the promises of personal benefits. You know, you bring your data, you get understanding from your fellow patients and tools in return. So, and what you're doing is you're contributing to the public goods. So, sharing information leads to a cure for your disease. Now, how does that work? What happens in, uh, you know, what happened to patients like me is that they, for instance, uh, uh, what they do with those data is they, uh, the partners of patients like me are not just universities but also uh, pharmaceutical companies and they recruit uh, uh, patients for trials that they do. And they use all the data that's been, you know, those are semi-structured data, of course, that, the, that patients uh, uh, provide. And, but they're not, you know, there's no control group. There's uh, a self-selection of individuals that puts up their data. And now they're sort of, in, uh, they've just published a, in a couple of journals, arguing that with the data provided by patients like me, you can sort of circ circumvene all those, you know, cumbersome patient trials. Because, you know, these are, there's, you know, a whole lot of data here that helps you um, uh, do research that you couldn't do before because all those patients volunteered to give away their data. And there's subjective data and there's a lot more data that you can do with, you know, a patient trial that usually has like 60 or 70 patients. So, of course, there's, you know, that's some call a paradigm shift of using this type of platform-based science 
instead of, or as a sort of an, uh, uh, a, a byproduct of uh, what this site really promises, which is uh, to have patient experiences exchanged. Okay, I already talked about, you know, the issue of privacy. There is explicitly no right to privacy on this site. And that's, uh, patients like me is very, very explicit about this. Um, if you look at the system, you know, in its entirety, what you see what's happening is that all of these sites, you know, you have business models and governance each of those, for each of those sites individually, but they're also part of that larger infrastructure, the ecosystem of platforms, that makes it much harder to identify how data is used, how it's going to be you know, used as in the, all these data flows. 23andMe, for instance, um, uh, 23andMe was actually founded by uh, the ex-wife of Sergey Brin. Sergey Brin is one of the co-founders of Google. And it's pretty much financed by Google, and it's part of the Google data universe. So patients, uh, uh, sorry, 23andMe is really, and now, you know, you see how those GAFA platforms are still pretty much power players or gatekeepers, I should say, in that ecosystem of platforms. Um, Parkinson Empower is a non-profit, pla it's actually a non-profit platform, but it's uh, part of, you know, its, its distribution is through the Apple App Store and through a nonprofit hub founded by Apple, which is called Research Kit. And it that kit provides researchers with a tool, you know, with tools to obtain automated data. But by in doing that, it becomes part of that entire infrastructure where it's very, very hard to find out how data flows go and how, you know, it's very hard to control how your data if are used outside or inside that whole ecosystem. Basically, the complexity of this infrastructure renders it very hard to um, identify how democratic control is taking place. Now, I was going to do uh, the second sector, which is higher education, but I don't think I have much time for that, so I should skip this. But if you're interested, I published an article on MOOCs and how, as, you know, in a similar way in, uh, in the International Journal of Communication. It came out last year, and I can give you the reference if you like. But I sort of analyzed that sector with, you know, various kinds of platforms, arguing about, you know, how the, uh, the sector of higher education is platformized, more or less. So, I'm not going to bother you with that today, but to resume, um, what I explained in the beginning is that each platform in itself is a site of contestation where those different values are clashing, different values in, you know, inscribed in the technology. And indeed, those platforms are often clashing with, you know, local, state or transnational European uh, governments and uh, legislative institutions. That's just part of the, uh, of the story. I think what we're seeing now is that this infrastructure of the, you know, this whole ecosystem of platforms is gradually, you know, evolving, but it's, of course, it's mostly uh, steered, at least in Western European countries, by American <coughs> corporate platforms who's, and the American corporate and, of course, uh, American ideological norms and values are pretty much inscribed in the norms and values of those platforms. So that infrastructure that has its own dynamics and uh, deploys its own rhetoric, of course, is 
very, you know, rapidly infiltrating our lots of offline sectors. Now, once again, this is not a bad thing in itself. It's not a good thing in itself. It's something that we need to be very much more aware of than we are now, because it's not just about platforms entering the public sphere, entering you know, any of those sectors. There's a lot more to it than simply disruption of a sector, sort of an upsetting of what we're doing. It's, it has a lot more impact than uh, it seems, because that the underlying dynamics underlying that you know, the infrastructure is very pervasive in how offline institutions are currently evolving and how they're implementing those platforms in their uh, institutional frameworks. So building trust in a platform society is really about reconfiguring this new space. What is public? What is private? Who controls the networked public sphere? So each one of those platforms positions itself in that platform society. It makes choices. But they also have to deal, each platform that we start, my neighborhood app that starts, you know, a neighborhood platform, has to take decisions about how it's governed, how it's, you know, uh, operated in my neighborhood. So that platform society is playing out in all different sectors, and, but it's really... Um, uh, supported by a very similar underlying dynamics. And what we're seeing is a gradual uh, blending of offline institutions with that particular dynamics. So I think one of our biggest challenges is to really see, you know, find out how we can anchor those public values like accuracy, safety and privacy. They're usually dealt with after the fact, after a platform has already uh, transformed an entire sector. Look at Airbnb. Um, just yesterday was this story in the newspaper, Airbnb is now trying to deal with local regulators, you know, in all different places and all over the world. They're doing that after the fact, after it has already transrupted the sector. Now, what I would like to see is very much, you know, that um, we're looking at design choices and look at how public values can be inscribed <laughs> in those choices, especially when it comes to public values like transparency, fairness, democratic control. So let me just, you know, uh, finish on that note. Um, how do we do that? How are we going to, you know, try to uh, transform a platform society and uh, integrate it with the norms and values that we are already developing inside those institutions? Well, I think for, platform, for users, users like me and you, we really have to start asking, or if we don't do that, we have to start doing it, simple but very pertinent questions for each platform. How does it work? How, what, what, is it, you know, what happens to the data? Be critical. Demand transparency for the sites that you use. Platform owners, you know, I uh, am collaborating now with, you know, more like data engineers. I try to tell them that they need to engineer public values into algorithms. Privacy is often privacy by design. So you really have to look at the design stage to uh, find out how those mechanisms can actually also accommodate public values like uh, privacy and uh, transparency. It's currently, last night I read in the New York Times, the whole regulatory uh, space is really a wild west. It's really, really up there. How are we going to do that? And basically, frankly, nobody knows. So, you know, that's basically asking like how to square a circle. And since we haven't resolved those questions, I think we really need, and that's one of the projects I'm going to enter uh, pretty soon, I'm going to enter in the project with both um, uh, data engineers 
lawyers, uh, uh, people like me from the humanities talking about social values and social scientists to see how we can um, you know, manage those, inscribing those values from the very moment of design. So, well, thank you. This is what I have to say. It's really work in progress, so if you have any good suggestions, and I hope you have, you can always send it to me, and I will be very happy to respond very gratefully. So, thank you. Well, Jose, uh, thank you um, so much. And um, I think you've given us a lot to think about. And what I'd like to do is uh, really offer some questions because I don't have the answers either and I don't know that uh, anybody here does. Andrew said at the start that we should all be tweeting and I don't know if you all were tweeting um, but I thought it was interesting that Jose van Dyke does not tweet uh, because I checked her out I yesterday. Stopped. I stopped. You didn't? <laughs> well, it's all still there, what, uh, your, your Twitter record and, indeed, Facebook. Um, so she's living a life that seems to me largely off social media, and perhaps that's um, indicative of uh, where um, she thinks this world is going. I'm reminded of reading The Circle. I don't know how many people um, here read The Circle about the kind of takeover of our lives. If you haven't, it's the best novel I read last Year or the year, yeah, last year, I think, by Dave Eggers. So it's the takeover of our lives by um, the platforms, essentially, and it's a pretty depressing read. And one of the things that, um, and it stayed with me, um, perhaps as I think uh, Jose's lecture is going to um, stay with me, that sense of the platforms uh, penetrating and transforming, and uh, perhaps, as in the circle, there is no escape. And what's striking about the circle, and I think what's striking also about the world that um, Joseph Van Dyke is describing to us, is that we are voluntarily walking into this. Uh, and I was thinking, um, uh, this happens to be the week, every year I ask my students in um, the audience course on media and communication to live one day without media. And it happened to be this was the week that we asked them to live Oh. one day without media, and this was the week that um, uh, they dismally failed, um, though there were some interesting experiments. Ten years ago, when I asked students to do this, they used to um, turn off everything, go and look at the sunset and write a poem. I haven't had that <laughs> response yet from um, current students. Um, but what's also striking is that um, uh, they're not bothered. I haven't read stories of uh, despair that, um, as it were, the platforms are taking over, but rather a sense that life without these platforms would be enormously boring, uh, dull. They would not feel connected. They would not be part of um, something. And uh, people are happy with it this way. I think that sense of the voluntary um, participation is, is really um, worth thinking about. So I sense that in our field, a kind of narrative, um, a dominant, new dominant narrative is emerging. We heard it, those of you who are at Frank uh, Pasquale's uh, lecture, opening the big uh, data um, uh, initiative here uh, just a few weeks ago. And I think we have it today. It's a kind of a grand narrative. And I think I am just at the point where I have questions about the nature of this grand narrative. So I'm interested in whether the platform society is a global um, Story, a global society, as um, Joseph Van Dyke's maps uh, very graphically suggested they were, even though, as we know so far, four billion people in the world are not online, and even Facebook is uh, struggling to uh, get them where it would like them to be. I also wonder what kind of a history this grand narrative is offering us. Um, what is the platform society being compared with? 
what was it like before? When, in fact, was before, before the penetration, the transformation, the interference, the disruption? And are we so sure that before uh, all human history, just 10 years ago, I'm not quite sure, um, was that before so much better? Did we really all used to read the same news story every day, or was there, in fact, a lot more diversity? Um, So... Was it really a world in which public values were more to the fore than they are today as we live in a a platform society um, that eschews public values? So I wonder what kind of historical process we're being offered in this this grand narrative. Um, And is this, as it were, an inevitable result of capitalism? Could it have been different? Um, How are we going to explain it? This is the role of us as um, social scientists. Uh, And those in the media and communication department will recognize that this is also a debate currently being branded under the notion of um, mediatization, where it attracts um, a number of concerns. Is this a linear story? Is this an overwhelmingly monolithic story? Where is the internal problems? Where is the evidence that kind of nails it? So... I think in the field of media and communication, for a long time, we thought that we were telling a story of the rise of communication through more media and more kinds of media. And in a way, we thought it was quite a good story. Um, And this reminds me, and we thought it was a diverse story. People were taking the media in all kinds of different directions. And as soon as you study the audiences, as I do, or the users or the publics, you see um, the diversity. So something I did last week was I went to the launch of um, Danny Miller's uh, new project, Why We Post, which is a a hugely ambitious study done um, at UCL with nine anthropologists spending a year and a half all over the world trying to understand what social networking is really meaning to people. And what comes back is nine very different kinds of stories of diverse appropriation of these media in different ways. So his, his tweet, as it were, is there are as many Facebooks as there are users and uses. There is not the single monolithic Facebook. Okay, we could, we could um, contest that. Many of us have also, I think, thought that what the, especially the digital media were offering was a narrative, a, a rise of connection and more kinds of connections. And um, I found it very productive in, in um, Joseph Van Dyke's book, Cultures of Connectivity, that she distinguishes between connection, which I think she sees as human relations, and connectivity, which she sees as um, uh, technological data and um, uh, corporate um, uh, Infrastructures that, that, that shape our, our possibilities. So the rise of connections also seems kind of possible and, and exciting, and I think that's what led to that moment of convergence culture and participatory culture and uh, sharing economies and, and so forth. But here I'm reminded of um, a book that I have just coming out soon, which is, was following a class of 13-year-olds over one year of their lives, so back to the ethnographic study, um, I spent with a, my colleague Julian Sefton-Green, we spent a year with one class of 28 kids and we tried to follow them to see where they could have more connections, where connections might better benefit them, where digital infrastructures might enable their learning or build new relationships or give them new kinds of forms of creativity and pathways to um, development. And what was very striking, if I have to reduce my book to a tweet, is the, way, the many and creative ways in which those kids sought forms of disconnection. 
and came off and didn't take up the opportunities and disrupted in minor but nonetheless um, significant ways what the kinds of connections were because they precisely feared that intrusion into their privacy and their um, spaces of agency and intimacy. Um, So if we put the people in the story and ask how lives are being lived, do we get some um, different kind of perhaps more uh, hopeful conclusion? But yes, I have to say, the rise of connectivity in the sense that, as Jose van Dijk um, tells us, is transferring uh, power from uh, informal spaces of our lives to institutional and corporate structures, from, private, from public spaces to private spaces, private corporate corporate spaces, um, and from uh, realms that are well managed by national regulation to realms that evade national um, regulation, then there is much to worry about. Again, in the culture of connectivity, which I was reading last night because, or rereading last night because I don't have the new one yet, um, there's one very chilling observation where uh, Jose van Dijk observes that Connectivity precisely feeds off those areas of society that society or the governments have systematically underfunded. So it is the realms of education, of health, of community, where um, the uh, inroads of the platform society are most visible. And that question of funding, I suppose, suggests to me that um, perhaps if there is any solution in our hands or any escape from uh, entirely corporatized platform society, uh, those solutions um, must be political and perhaps, uh, for the lawyers here, uh, legal. In my experience, (laughs) to motivate politicians and perhaps lawyers, and I do occasionally try to um, uh, collaborate with both, We need to be really clear about what we see as the cost. What is going wrong? And this will be my my last point. Because throughout this narrative, and I will think more broadly than uh, Jose's lecture today, there is this sense of a pressing concern of something going wrong that it seems to me isn't ever quite being um, articulated. Um, What is being disrupted? What is being interfered with? In what ways are we sure that the transformations are problematic? Um, How are we going to evaluate what's going wrong in our society? Of course, there's a huge amount going wrong in our society. So another way of asking the question is, of all the things going wrong in our society today, how are we going to decide what kind of responsibility to attribute to the platforms? Of all the inequality in society, of all the disruption with global events in our society, do the platforms play a role? Are they a key part of the story? Um, For a completely different reason to do with my work with UNICEF today, I was reading or rereading the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are a pretty grand set of goals about ending poverty, hunger, inequality and such. Those folk are positioning technologies, these platforms, in a way as part of the solution, but as a pretty minor part of the solution compared with all the other things that need to be done. So they're not positioning the platforms as terribly powerful at all. So I think um, my question really is, where do we see the costs of the platform society? Where do we expect to see them? What kind of indicators should we as social scientists be tracking in order to chart those problems? And how, if, if they are significant, how are we going to convince the politicians to do something about it? So, thank you.
Well, thank you, Sonia. I thought I sort of addressed a pretty big problem, but you managed to make it even bigger than <laughs> I <laughs> than I already presented it. So, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's um, part of what you're saying is okay. What uh, what is the cost of you know transferring to a tra- transferring into or uh, transforming into a platform society? Um, I'm not so much thinking in terms of cost as what it does to um, a lot of institutions that we are used to now that are putting democratic control up front and that are making it visible. A lot of the decisions that we take in terms of you know, uh, uh, democratic institutions are now becoming more and more invisible in algorithms, in protocols, in data flows that we have no control over. And that is, I think, one of the things I wanted to point out here is where are we in terms of democratic control? Is it something that we you know, should not worry about and just leave to corporations who are doing the right thing? I mean, you know, they promise to be not to be evil and to be good, and you know, we can sort of trace them and track them and follow them, and, um, and, and um, you know, they're pretty much accountable to some extent, but to another extent, governments are losing their grip on, and, and, you, and citizens are losing grip on how values and norms are inscribed in laws. And I think it's really in between the field of social values and norms and the legalization of that, what you know, Foucault calls the legalization of uh, sociality. That's that entire gray field that we're deal- trying to deal with now. And that is what I'm intrigued by. How does that work? And part of that me being intrigued by is because it's invisible. It's sort of, you know, hidden in um, uh, technical choices, engineering choices that we have no access to. But that's only the beginning of an answer. But, you know, your question is much bigger than that. Okay. Thank you to both our speaker and our respondent. Um, We've had already vibrant discussion but um, we offer an opportunity now for questions from the floor. We don't have a lot of time, but if you can indicate, and you, what we'll do is we'll take three questions, and then so the gentleman there was immediately up with his hand, and we've got a gentleman there. Do we have a third? There. There, the gentleman there. Take, oh, sorry. and back there. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm of a generation still... Uh, trying to come to terms with uh, all these newfangled things. Um, one of the... Um, I, I might have liked you to mention more about advertising um, because two of the big four uh, you, you, you outlined, Google and Facebook, are basically selling advertising and a great deal of the data selling is about uh, allowing other organisations to deliver so-called personalized advertising. And in the process, a great deal of data is being collected about us, and it's not actually safe. Um, And I've been reading a book, perhaps we probably have finished it, I'm still in the middle of it, by Mark Goodman called Future Crimes. And it's a very scary book. And uh, that basically... uh, there have been many cases of um, private organizations and government organizations that have already been hacked and that uh, its fraud is becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, I listen sometimes on the radio, Radio 4's You and Yours, 
which is a consumer program. And every day, it seems, they've got stuff about people, people's bank accounts being robbed. And there's also the way in which people can be stalked uh, on media, that domestic, uh, victims of domestic violence find it more difficult to shake off um, their aggressors because a lot of information is out there or already without being hacked, or it can be hacked. And so um, I suppose I'm just adding to the Wild West scenario that a lot of these organizations that are supposed to be delivering, uh, you know, the public good are in actual fact facilitating uh, more and more crime that uh, it's only going to increase, according to Goodman, because of greater use of mobile phones and then the Internet of Things. So you can ask the questions about, well, what should we do about it? Well, in some ways it's already a bit too late and the institutions that already exist are not going to help a great deal. So I think some very fundamental transformations of society are going to be called for. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your comments. I think, secu- sorry. Oh, you were going to, sorry, okay. Yeah, uh, thank you for talk. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think you addressed a very right question about uh, anchoring our collective uh, public values. And in particular, I'm thinking about uh, democracy as one of, one of the most important values. And I'm thinking about those uh, bit different uh, platform societies you mentioned before, like Russia or China. And uh, while we all understand that Internet and platform society is something, something global, we still have in quite different uh, societies. Maybe it's, it's, it's an issue of context and political system and so on. But do you think that we also should address uh, issues of um, and be maybe aware of possibility that those different platform societies are going to come uh, and somehow steer the rest of the world how it happened, uh, uh, how North, uh, North America pl- uh, platform did before. So, and do you think uh, we also should uh, do something with that and somehow maybe uh, influence those different uh, waves of organizing platform society in order to be sure that we're going to save our values as democracy for the future? Thank you. Okay. okay. And one last question. Uh, at... Ronan L. Tynan, by way of confessing I do tweet. Um, first of all, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation and response. But uh, whereas platform is definitely a good description, but I put it to you really, what we're fundamentally talking about are extremely successful businesses which are run by businesses. And in fact, the most insightful thing we heard tonight, I will put it to you, is that they are all, what was that? They're all for-profit businesses with a not-for-profit attitude. Yeah. What sums up Facebook better than that? And that's the essence of it. If you want to make money in cyberspace, you must do it for-profit, but give the impression you're some kind of good chap, charity, blah, 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 in favor of mom, apple pie, or whatever you want. You know what I mean? So when you ask the fundamental question about regulation, we're deluding ourselves if we don't come right up front and say, this is about the privatization of the public space 
And that's fair enough as long as people agree with that. But ultimately, there is no democratic control unless we have a proper bill of digital rights. Like you, there were six headings there like transparency, etc., etc. That could easily be catered for by some kind of bill of rights and we could secure democratic rights. But this is about retaking democratic control of the, of the space. And if we allow this, this kind of, this, this complete, uh, you know, uh, dilution, or the, it's almost like a kind of, witting censorship of a fundamental business ideology. That's really very dangerous, and we've got to kind of wake up, and people have been anaesthetized into this, which, like the banking sector, which I admit I've done a little bit of research in that area, you know, we've seen with the, the subprime crisis, slicing and dicing. And slicing and dicing, let me assure you, has not been abolished. But I don't want to go into that right now. <laughs> thank you. Well, right. Thank you very much for all of your really, really interesting question. But let me start with the latter, because I think you really point at a very um, interesting thing, which is that uh, uh, for-profit uh, motive with a not-just-for-profit uh, you know, not motive for, and a, a non-profit attitude. Um, that's the thing that I encountered most and that bothers me the most in you know, terms of that ecosystem. And I've, you know, in my previous book, I saw that same sort of uh, diffusion of, of uh, the public sphere happening with Facebook and with Twitter. And each of those companies, which you're right, they're all like you know, for-profit companies. Um, they're trying to present themselves as if they were your best friend. As you, you were seeing in the clip, you know, patients like me, it presents uh, the site as, you know, this is good for you. This is good for public good. This is good for health research. This is what we all ought to do in order to, um, uh, you know, to make for better research, to, you know, to find a cure. As, as if the platform itself is trying to find a cure. Now, and that's what really bothers me most. And that's why I have focused, instead of focusing, you know, telling, uh, telling you guys that Facebook is making money, is not, you know, it's not much news. But a lot of these health apps are positioning themselves very literally as not-for-profit or not just for profit or not so for profit or a little bit for profit but not really for profit. And that's the kind of diffusion that, that really bothers me. That is, you know, where people are not saying, at least patients like me says, hey, you guys, please be aware. If you give away your data, hey, you're not, you know, this is what can happen. Insurance companies can use it. Uh, we can combine it. And now, and, but this is just part of the system. You were referring to the, uh, the banking system, which is a, a comparison that really occurred to me you know, a number of times while I was working on these issues. In 2008, derivatives became one of the most you know, uh, complex issues in the banking world. Now that I'm trying to find how each of those platforms work, work and operate, it occurred to me that some of these platforms are almost working like derivatives. The complexity of the ecosystem is huge. I can hardly tell you where data come from, where they go, how they're being used and how they're repurposed. And that repurposing, and now I come to the first question about advertising, um, that repurposing is a big, big thing. Um, all of these companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc., they are data companies. They're data businesses. They're no longer social platforms, you name it, search engines. They're data businesses. And of course they make their money on advertising, but what they make most of their money on is data-driven activities. You know, 
In, in the United States, there are now like three big, huge data companies that are all collaborators of Facebook, Google, and the, you know, the five major platforms. And I just read that each of those uh, companies have, on each individual in the United States and probably outside of the United States, they have 1,500 data points. They call it data points. Now, what are data points? Data points are um, uh, data that they are that are recombined, repurposed, and used for other purposes than were how, you know how they were gathered in the first place, how they were collected, and that really needs to make us think that. There, first, there is no public sphere. There is no public space in that whole ecosystem that I showed. It's simply not there. If we want to carry on using you know, public institutions or at least uh, respect democratic mechanisms that we have all you know, decided that are good for us, for the common good, then we need to find mechanisms to control that in the various spheres that we've put up. That's no easy thing because all those data are used for everything, for personalized advertising, for insurance, uh, you know, deciding whether you're going to get insurance or not. That's all about the public good. So, and that's why you know, it's not just advertising that personalized data systems are working for. It's for everything. And that's you know, very profound. Now, coming to your question, because indeed I was talking about um, uh, uh, corporate uh, platforms. 90, I think 95 to 98% of all platforms are American-based and are working from American uh, uh, corporate, you know, uh, American companies are run by American companies, even if they operate globally. Now that's huge. That's very profound because they're very much deciding how other systems, like you know, in Western Europe, here, for instance, in the Netherlands, we used we are having a lot more uh, sort of public sectors. Education in the Netherlands is completely public. There's no private uh, form of higher education. I'm really seriously concerned whether we can keep it that way or whether we have control over how that public sector is evolving. You know, knowing that, for instance, now in primary education and secondary education, uh, data firms are increasingly uh, becoming in control of the American uh, uh, educational market, which has really become a market and it was much more privatized in the first place. So. Um, and now I come get to your your uh, your point about the different um, uh, hemispheres. Of course, you know China, Russia, uh, being different from a, uh, a Western, more capitalistic, li uh, libertarian system, which is very much defined by Silicon Valley ideologies. Well, for one thing, what we have seen over the past years is that Facebook or Google is trying to position themselves. In not just in India or in China, but you know, well, India is actually a very interesting case because they try to do. You've probably heard about the latest case where they try to position themselves as a non-profit, um, internet.org, in India. And India, I think, I was very proud of Indian government uh, rejecting that offer because they on, well, the only thing they offered was a smaller internet with uh, the gateway. The only gateway to the internet was Facebook. So. I think that, I thought, was a very profound and nice form of, uh, of emancipation of the Indian um, uh, government to say no to Facebook in terms of you know, the conditions that they uh, put up for India becoming networked. 
Now, of course, Russia and China are different stories, but I don't believe in that. I said in one of my slides, there, it's not you know, it's not a monolithic story. To come back to uh, Sonia's uh, comment, it's not a monolithic story in the sense that we will get one big global platform society. On the contrary, I think you know the whole idea of we're becoming a united world in terms of a platform society is. Uh, rendering invisible once again the mechanisms by which those uh, uh, the the uh, you know the differences between democratic and not democratic between profit and non-profit it's practically becoming invisible in that those underlying mechanisms and that is something that I would like to point out. Now I'm not saying that you can't do any good with you know a lot of these platforms, and that's you know they're pointing that out constantly. But I think that's a story that has pretty bit, pretty much been told by the companies themselves. But what I'm really adamant at pointing out is how they are successful at uh, bringing about connections, but the connectivity itself, the very system that it's inscribed in, that it's based on is doing things to our social actions, to the organization of our public life that um, are pretty much becoming invisible because we don't look at those algorithms, we don't ask for the governance models, we are not really interested in, you know, finding this, the, the 100,000 fitness apps and how it works and how it gives away our data to, you know, through our, through our iPhone to, you know, a lot of other users. Um, I was just going to comment on the idea of bills of rights, which are um, proliferating in many countries. And I'm just, um, well, I just ask every lawyer I meet if they have any purchase and if they're going to um, go anywhere, because there's a lot of enthusiasm around them and a sense that this might be a mechanism by which politicians, the law, can kind of take back some control. Um, Perhaps it's hopeless, though. I did ask the lawyer (laughs) to comment on this particular point. Well, I, I have a question to you as a lawyer. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. And, and, and so, but as I said, legislation often, often comes after the fact. What can we do to make legislation part of the design, of technological design, of uh, uh, you know, governance models design? What can we do about that? <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's a very large question to answer in the no <laughs> in time we have left. Um, but but the, the truth is that legislation tends to be reactive to a problem yeah. today. And it's very difficult for a lawyer or for a, a lawmaking body to, in essence, give a, a proactive, let's say, um, rights-based approach. And we, we've got our rights models, but to convert these into something which is narrow enough to be applicable to a design structure is extremely difficult. And also you run into the problem of then the law tends to be designed around a technological determinism for what the technology is at that time. And lawyers are very bad at being able to predict where the technology is going to go. So you're either left with something which is too imprecise to be effective but is not tied to the technological determinism, or you end up with something which is overtaken by technological developments and was designed narrowly enough, right. essentially. So we're, we're, you, you fall somewhere between two stools. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that um, 
people like Jonathan Zittrain have talked yeah. a lot about yeah. in the past about how the network has changed from the way it was envisaged. And, you know, his idea of plasticization is very similar yeah. to the idea of platforms. Um, and you see parallels between the two. Um, I've been kind of ganged up upon here to actually do more than to be uh, an, uh, an impartial chair. Um, I was actually hoping to take more questions, but we've actually gone beyond our time. Um, such has been the level of detail that we've got from Jose in particular in her, both her presentation and the very detailed answers. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome. And from the excellent contribution also from Sonia. Um, so can I just ask you to thank our two speakers. <laughs> <laughs>